Bryn Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. Welcome one and all to another uh, special edition. Uh, this is actually a crossover edition of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, the Mod Pod, and New Retina Radio. And uh, if you're wondering why I have uh, my hair cut uh, tightly today and a, a collared shirt on, it's because we're, we're upping our game today. We're actually talking to the leadership of the AAO, ASCRS, and the AOA which I think is possibly the first time we've ever had the leadership of the major societies um, on uh, basically the same stage uh, at once. We're so excited to have this conversation about how do we all get back to the new normal? How do we work together? And how do we bring ophthalmology and optometry together so we can enhance the patient experience and really um, maybe take our profession or professions to the next level together? With that little uh, preamble, Blake, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guests? Yeah, thank you, Gary. You know, I think that in times of crisis, uh, you look to your leaders to guide you. And we think that moving forward, it's going to be a, an entirely, uh, you know, new way of, of taking care of patients. And that's what we thought bringing leaders from both optometry and ophthalmology would be very important. So we're very honored to have uh, uh, Dr. Bill Reynolds, who's the president, uh, the, the incoming president of the American Optometric Association. Uh, my good friend, Dr. George Williams, who's the immediate past president of the American Academy of Ophthalmology, and of course, uh, the one and only Dr. Terry Kim, who is the uh, incoming president of the ASCRS. So uh, very happy to, to have all of you uh, here with us today. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these things, Gary, we've talked a lot about on these podcasts about a lot of the loss uh, that we've had. Uh, but usually we're talking about our businesses and our practices um, lost there. But, you know, Terry, I understand that, that you've had a personal tragedy recently. Yeah, um, Blake, first of all, th thanks for uh, inviting all of us to be here. I, I think uh, it's great for all of us to talk like this, and it's, it's certainly a time of collaboration. Um, but, yeah, I did suffer a loss uh, about two and a half weeks ago. My father passed away from, from COVID. Um, so, you know, obviously uh, a tragedy and, I, you know, it made me realize I, I feel a lot for those folks who, who are losing loved ones, whether it's from uh, COVID or some other reason, because it's certainly a different environment there. Um, you know, uh, my father lived, uh, he's a retired physician, lived uh, outside Philadelphia and, and, you know, in that area, we had uh, services very limited in New Jersey and New York and, you know, just a lot of logistical things I didn't plan to anticipate. You know, I had to scramble to get my mother tested because they would not let her attend unless she was COVID negative. They let my sister and I and our families who were younger go in, um, you know, very limited access uh, for the burial ceremony. So, you know, these are the kind of things you, you necessarily don't think about. So um, certainly I'll miss my dad. He, he, he really had a lot to do with steering me towards uh, the field of ophthalmology into academics. I'm gonna miss him because uh, he always gave me great advice, uh, but I know he's uh, looking on and, and smiling as we move forward uh, and as we go to a more successful uh, arena for all of us. 
Yeah, I, yeah. I, I know I speak for, for, you know, all of your hundreds, if not thousands of friends across ophthalmology, um, whenever we send our thoughts and prayers to your family. And I'm very sorry for your loss, Terry. Um, I also want to pose you uh, the first question. Um, you've had this in your life, and now you have to turn on a dime and lead, you know, virtual Ascaris, because, you know, my understanding is that you're going to be uh, sort of uh, uh, brought in as president at Virtual Ascra. So I just kind of want to hear your thoughts behind the preparation that y'all been doing for that meeting and kind of what all, what all went into it, the decision-making. When did you decide it was going to be virtual and how it's coming along? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, let me just start off by thanking uh, everyone, uh, my friends and colleagues and everyone from all the uh, emails, the phone calls, the text messages, the cards, flowers, the tweets. Uh, it's really been encouraging. So um, I want to thank everyone for that. And, and I also want to thank my family at Asperis. Uh, and we have been working really hard. We've been in constant communication. Um, the leadership has. Steve Spears has done, I think, an outstanding job leading our organization. And in answer to your question, like it wasn't an easy decision to move ahead with the virtual meeting. Uh, we have never done a virtual meeting. Um, there's costs certainly involved with doing a virtual meeting. And of course, all of us um, are suffering uh, from the trickle-down effect uh, of this COVID uh, virus. But I think now is the time uh, that all of us need to rally around our medical societies, whether it's Asperis uh, or AAO or AOA. Uh, it's important because we're the organizations that are going to help get folks through this crisis. Um, you know, if you look at that Commonwealth, uh, Commonwealth Fund article from Harvard School of Public Health, uh, it showed that the decline in visits to the medical profession was largest in our surgical and procedural specialties, and ophthalmology was the hardest hit specialty with close to an 80% decline, you know, compared to baseline. Um, and if you look at a recent AO survey uh, that, that looked at uh, the responses from the majority of U.S. ophthalmologists, we're, you know, we're all optimistic about reopening practices in May and June, but there are a lot of us that are concerned about the size of the practice and, and what the financial state's going to be. So the virtual meeting is one major way ASPLUS has decided to address the COVID crisis and the recovery. Um, and, you know, it's going to be packed full of information, certainly not what we can accomplish in, in our regular meeting, but over 30 plus CME credits, 400 hours uh, of content. And um, I wanna thank you guys for, for allowing me to share this slide that's just gonna provide a little summary information uh, about the meeting. Um, and I encourage everyone uh, to hopefully uh, register for it, regardless of whether you're a member or not, just annualmeeting.ascrs.org there's going to be specific content on the recovery process uh, in a session that will be moderated by Eric Donenfeld and Bruce Mallard that will play, take place on Saturday and Sunday uh, morning. Um, and there's going to provide a, a wealth of information from, from a variety of specialists, not only ophthalmologists, but administrators, psychologists, legal experts, healthcare consultants, and really going to give you precise steps on preventing infections in the clinic and OR how to restart your ASC and reopen your clinic safely. Mitigating fear in our patients, which is certainly a concern for all of us. Learning from others that have already witnessed this, for instance, our, our folks uh, internationally. There also is gonna be a great special session on Sunday with the former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who's really a noted expert on COVID uh, and its recovery. Uh, and I'm interested to hear his uh, views. 
And, you know, for our trainees out there, uh, the YES uh, committee is going to have a session that's going to be moderated by Sam Garg and Nicole Fram. And it's, I think, going to address a lot of the issues that are on the minds of our trainees. I've listened to some of your previous podcasts and heard from, from the trainees in, in terms of what's on their minds. You know, how do they keep their surgical skills sharp? Um, how will COVID affect the job market and the job search? Um, what's it going to be like going into this new practice environment? And I also think uh, we have to thank our industry partners for all the support they've had to, to allow these, these you know, webinars and for these virtual meetings to take place because we couldn't do it without them. And this is going to be a critical time for our medical society organizations to help bridge the gap between uh, um, the providers because um, they're not going to be able to access them because of the continued social distancing policies. And also simply because of time, a lot of practices are going to be focused on reopening dealing with backlogs in their clinical surgical volume. So um, we're going to have a virtual uh, exhibit floor that's going to give that access. And we're certainly going to have our Aspers Film Festival as well. So a lot of activity there. I hope folks register. I think it's going to be great content. And you know what I've noticed, uh, Blake and Gary, in this unpre unprecedented times of social distancing and isolation is I'm really uh, encouraged by the bringing together of people and the collaboration that I'm seeing. Uh, it's been really encouraging. We've, uh, I don't think, ever worked so close with AAO. Uh, I know Steve uh, Spears and David Park have been in constant communication uh, with our respective teams, partnering with them uh, to provide many of the COVID-related resources that you see on our websites and our webinars. As you know, we have our accelerator program together on ophthalmic innovations. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, things going on on the government relations side as well. I want to shout out to Nancy McCann and our government relations clinical committee because they're working very hard on a lot of immediate and long-term relief initiatives that are going to be important for our practices. And you've mentioned in your podcast and your and your program before, you know, the CARES Act, the Advanced Payment Program, Provider Relief Funds, Paycheck Protection Program, Education on Telemedicine. And they're working really hard with, you know, leaders and key staff in Congress, the Health and Human Services, CMS, to advocate for additional re relief for our members. And, and long-term, you know, working with the AMA, the medical community, and surgical coalitions like the Alliance of Specialty Medicine, that's going to advocate for inclusion of ophthalmology in the next COVID package. So, you know, extending timelines with advanced payment program, extending Medicare sequestration suspension, and also, as you alluded to earlier, Blake, addressing the ENM changes uh, for 2021, you know, advocating for increases to our post-op payments, uh, which will go a long way in getting what we lost uh, in the cataract code reductions earlier this year. So hopefully that provides some kind of overview of what ASCUS is trying to do to help our members. Yeah. Thanks, Terry, for that, that update. Um, you know, I'm going to be attending. I'm, I can't wait to see all the awesome digital content. Um, it's amazing how we've had all these tools at our disposal in the past, and it took something like COVID for us to start using Zoom, for example, or start realizing all the things that we can do virtually and get really pretty much the same content. It may not be quite the same connectivity and we love the social aspects of the meetings as well. But from an education standpoint, um, I think it's going to be just fantastic. I can't wait to hear uh, Scott Gottlieb. I'm a huge fan of his. Uh, he is so smart. I love listening to his, his perspectives. Um, and I think it's going to be a fantastic program. I'm very excited about it. Um, I wanted to flip it over to, to Dr. Bill Reynolds, who is a, a fellow Kentuckian, a friend of mine who I'm really excited to uh, be able to share this, this program with today. Uh, Bill, how is um, COVID-19 affecting the AOA meeting 
Uh, and what are you all doing? I, I think this, it's going to be a little bit similar to what the ASTRS has done. Yeah, uh, it's going to be real similar. And uh, I, I first want to thank Gary and Blake for having me on. And, and Terry, I, I am very sorry to hear about your loss. And uh, I know how difficult uh, that would have to be and then to pick up the, the pieces and be moving forward so fast. But our meeting's much the same. Uh, it was scheduled at the end of June. And, uh, you know, we wanted to take everybody's safety, uh, the, the attendees and, and uh, ours and everybody else's safety into effect. So uh, it was canceled uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, we are providing some virtual continuing education and, uh, you know, most of our affiliates provide education too. So, so we've kind of scaled it back to try to help some of those out with some of the programs they're doing, but some of the states don't provide that. So we have to provide enough for our members to be able to access. So we kind of tried to walk the line and have the right amount there. Uh, we also uh, have a house of delegates at ours where we do the business of the association. And so we are having uh, the election done virtually, uh, and that will be done towards the end of June at, at the time when it normally is. And then the rest of the House of Delegates we've suspended until later in the year. And uh, how that will happen, we're, we're really kind of waiting to see what the, the future landscape is before we, we move forward with that. Yeah, I just want to remind all of our participants, we've got about 130 uh, people right now uh, across specialties uh, watching this and tuning in, a lot of our friends, uh, familiar faces. Um, if you have questions specifically that you'd like to ask, uh, please feel free to uh, put those in the Q&A section uh, because we, we want this to be interactive. We want this to be something uh, where uh, we're providing sort of real-time uh, information. Uh, Dr. Williams, I'd, I'd love to know from your perspective, uh, how is the uh, AAO handling this? I know at this point, it seems like we're all hands on deck looking forward to a, a live meeting um, for the Academy this fall. Is that still the, the current situation? That is the plan, Gary. Again, uh, Terry, my deepest sympathies on your loss. We have the luxury of time. The meeting's not scheduled till November. That also gives us the luxury of uncertainty and so what we're trying to determine is just how we're going to be able to structure the meeting. So we have basically three scenarios. One is that it's, we're all in. It's going to be an in-person meeting in Las Vegas. We've had extensive discussions with the venues in Las Vegas. As you may well imagine, this is an existential threat to Las Vegas as we know it. And so they are looking at every possible way to make it safe for people to come back. And uh, it's not only uh, the hotels that we're working with and the convention center we're at, but, but all of them. And so it's it likely to be a different appearance to Vegas when, when we return. Uh, but we are hopeful that by then, We'll have enough information that we can have a safe meeting, safe for our, our attendees, for our vendors, and that we can provide the value to everyone that is associated with the largest ophthalmology meeting on the planet. That said, we're also keeping our eyes wide open, and we realize that with the uncertainty of the future, we don't know whether or not we're gonna be able to execute that model. So we have other models in play. One would be still an in-person meeting, but with a substantial online component, virtual component. And I would agree with the comments that have been made. 
the, uh, the virtual meeting constructs now are very impressive. Just in the past week, I had the opportunity to participate in a virtual meeting out of Wilmer. That was a retina-only meeting. The execution was flawless. The talks were great. The panelists were, it's just like you're in the room uh, at a convention center. And then the next day I, I had the opportunity to do a similar one with my colleagues and friends in Brazil, the retina docs down there. And again, it, it went very smoothly. So I think it has opened our eyes to the potential of these technologies. And the third option is for whatever reason, whether it's a resurgence of the virus in the fall or whether uh, Las Vegas just can't put it together to our satisfaction to guarantee safety, would be uh, an entirely virtual meeting for AAO as well. So uh, we're looking at all those options. A lot of people are spending an amazing amount of time. As you know, the Academy has a, a very large, experienced, dedicated meetings group led by Deb Rosencrantz, and we are in in contact with them on a, on a weekly basis, trying to figure out exactly how we're gonna put this together. But our goal is to have a meeting uh, in November, an in-person meeting. George, um, I'd like to ask you, and then I'm gonna throw it to Terry, um, you know, beyond just the meeting, I'm curious what each of y'all's organizations, AO and Ascris, and then also AOA, you know, what do y'all think your main role in this COVID-19 crisis is at this moment? So, you know, what, what is it that you guys feel like you need to be doing the most, whether it be, you know, you know, telling doctors how to, you know, do their PPE or what procedures to do? The reason I ask is because early on, we were trying to figure out if we were going to shut down or what procedures we were going to do. Everybody was kind of waiting for guidance. You know, some, some people had state mandates, others didn't. And then when, sort of when AAO and ASCRIS came out with, hey, you know, only elective or, or sorry, only urgent and emergent, that was kind of it. So I'm kind of curious about, you know, what each of you envision the main role or number one job of your society besides, you know, putting on the meeting uh, is at this point. Well, I think we have uh, two primary jobs. The first is exactly what you said, and that's to educate the members, to give them the resources that they need to deal with this disaster. So as a result, of course, I think everyone is now familiar with the information that's available on the Academy website that is, is being reviewed almost on a daily basis. I'd like to throw a shout out to Jim Chodesh and his group who have been doing just amazing work on making sure that we have the absolute state of the art on the science. And then uh, that we also have the absolute state of the art on uh, practice management issues. So I think one in one A are education and advocacy. And so we have been working closely with all of our contacts in Washington. We've been working closely with Nancy McCann and her team at ASCRS, because we do sense that there is an opportunity here to change direction. What we've, what we've witnessed is that we have constructed a healthcare system in this country that is predicated on the lowest possible cost, the highest possible quality, while requiring immediate access. 
And the dirty little secret is there's no healthcare system on the planet that does all three and you can only pick two. And the result of what we've constructed in this country, as great as I think American medicine is, the COVID crisis has demonstrated the frailty of our system, the lack of capacity, the lack of reserves, so that when we get a little bit tipped over on the rails, the train just comes right off the tracks. We need a, a fundamental reconstructing of how we pay for healthcare with a recognition that we just can't always try to drive the most efficient, uh, the lowest cost to deliver healthcare to the American people, because this is exactly what we get. If we look at the purchasing power of physician reimbursement since 2000 in, in real dollars, what's called consumer price index adjusted purchasing power. Physicians, not just ophthalmologists, but physicians are down 25% since 2000. Hospitals are only up 8%. Those numbers are not sustainable to the maintenance of a high quality responsive healthcare system. And so despite the disasters that are occurring, we think that there are opportunities for medicine, the House of Medicine, to demonstrate that something has to change in how we deliver healthcare and how we pay for healthcare. And so we're looking forward to those opportunities. The short-term things such as the various loan programs that are available, the uh, Paycheck Protection Program, the advanced payments for Medicare, those are all critical to our short-term survival. But what is critical to the long-term survival of our professions is a, a fundamental change in attitude and a recognition that what we've been doing over the past 20 years will, will just result in more of the same for the next pandemic or the next major emergency. Can I jump in here real quick? Um, George, you brought up a really interesting point about how basically if you look at who's taking it on the chin, as prices go up for healthcare, physicians are taking a disproportionate uh, reduction in, in payment. Um, and it, we are a skilled labor force. You know, we don't want to think about ourselves that way because I think we all would say that being a physician is a very special calling and it's a, and it's a profession that we love. But we have very little bargaining power it seems you know it seems like we we go to congress and say will you please pay us more for cataract surgery and they say uh no we will not we will pay you less and we say well please don't do that they'll say yep we're still going to do it and we say we really don't want you to and then we just say okay we'll go and do cataract surgery i mean at what point do we just say we have to bond together. You know, I know unions are a dirty word and they're illegal potentially. And there's all sorts of things about that. But at some point, Atlas will shrug and say, this isn't working. And there's a lot of physicians, you know, ophthalmologists have been insulated from this. But we look at our brothers and sisters in arms in New York and New Jersey and Detroit who aren't getting adequate PPE. They're putting their lives on the line. You've got nurses putting their lives on the line. At what point do people say, you know, 
Bill, we're, we're in Kentucky, right? We have coal mines in Kentucky. And you think about the, the dangerous work conditions that set up the unionization of, of coal workers. You know, I, I see a lot of parallels to what is happening right now. And I don't want to just, you know, cry for ophthalmology. We, we, you know, we do okay. But there's, there's a tipping point coming, and I think it's very close. And I, I'm sorry to throw such a haymaker there, but, George, what do you say about the, all that? I think you're correct. I think we are at a point where we, we need to take that step back and, and look at how we fundamentally construct the healthcare system and specifically physician reimbursement. So the reason we are down 25% since the year 2000 is because of some idiosyncrasies within the Medicare payment system. And let's be realistic, it's the Medicare payment system that drives the rest of our, our payments. One of those is a concept called budget neutrality. And what that means is that if CMS decides, and at the end of the day, it's not Congress that's decide, that, that decides and it's not the RUC, it's CMS. Now, the, the RUC process that I had the privilege of participating in for about 15 years is important to that, but CMS makes the final decision. And the way the system works now is if, let's just say cataract surgery, let's just say we have compelling arguments that cataract surgery should be raised X percentage. The reality is, is that the way the system is structured, that means that everything else has to go down by the same percentage. And so what we have is this system where physicians are not receiving realistic payment updates. So I, we have another chart that we like to use a lot that shows that every year hospitals, skilled nursing facilities, outpatient facilities get a yearly kicker. And it's, you know, a couple, 3%. But over time, that becomes substantial. We don't get that in medicine for physicians. And in fact, we're now in the midst of a period where we are scheduled to receive zero update through 2026. So as we all know now, we're in a situation where we're gonna have increased practice expenses. We're gonna to have to figure out how we pay for PPE for our, our staffs, ourselves, and our patients. We're gonna to have to figure out how we account for the diminished patient volumes that we're gonna to have to see to accommodate social distancing. I can tell you that the days of packed waiting rooms and patients being willing to wait an hour or two hours to see us are simply over. The American public is never going to go back to that. And uh, I'm old enough to be on the other side of healthcare right now, and I'm never gonna go back to that. And so we're gonna have to completely restructure how we deliver care, and that's gonna cost money. So I completely agree that the system we have today does not work. I would argue it hasn't worked for at least the past decade, and the only way we've made it work it's because of the willingness of American physicians to just work harder. And this is not an ophthalmology specific issue. Uh, 
I, I'm a chairman of a department. I meet with the chairs of all the other departments and I see how hard my general surgery colleagues work, how my chest surgeons work, how my nephrologist works. We are, we are literally working people to death. And we now see evidence of that in the increased rate of physician burnout. We all got into medicine, I believe, for the right reasons, for the great privilege of being able to take care of people. And to me, there is, there is no greater privilege. But we need the resources to be able to do that. And so we have a once in a generation opportunity now. I think that there's never been more good faith in the dedication of physicians and healthcare providers. And so I'm hoping that we can, we can leverage that goodwill and good faith with rational explanations as to why the current system is simply not sustainable. Thanks, George. Terry, can you comment on, on sort of on, on that and, and really what you think, you know, your new, the, the new society, uh, you know, with Ascaris and what we're going to be doing to, to address these things? Sure. Well, you know, I want to echo a lot of the astute comments um, that, that George has made regarding this topic and, and regards to, to Gary's uh, additional question of, of uh, what we need to do uh, to change this. I mean, I think now more than ever, we need to be united and coalesce uh, and rally behind our medical societies because that's how you're going to have a larger voice. Um, so if you're out there now, uh, that's one way you can do it. Join AAO, join ASCRS. It's very easy. Just go on the website and log on and you can have access to a lot of these resources because as, as George was, was uh, alluding to, you know, for instance, this advocating for budget neutrality to be waived is one of the ways we'll hopefully get these EM uh, increases. And we, we really have to be strong as an organization. And, and what, you know, I think the three things that, that we're going to try to focus on uh, as a society um, is obviously number one, COVID recovery. I mean, that is the critical uh, thing here because as we all open our practices and transition, it, it's going to be a totally new practice environment. Um, and, you know, the solutions are going to really differ for every practice based on the size, the location, the population. Um, and so uh, we have to be uh, aware that it's going to be slow, gradual recovering, but it's going to be different for, for everybody. So ASCRS and ASOA, and I want to thank all the staff there. They've worked so hard, uh, not only on the virtual meeting, and to convert, by the way, to a regular meeting to a virtual meeting is not uh, the easiest thing to do. but but we're gonna be here to provide very concrete and creative answers to these questions. Because I think, uh, as we're all talking about, we're gonna to have to come up with new solutions to these problems as we move forward and try to recover. And as George alluded to, I think education, of course, is critical. Because um, we're also, you know, for Asquith, in addition to our, our pillar missions of uh, philanthropy and advocacy, uh, education remains our top priority. But how we educate our members is going to change as we move to this new learning environment. And we've certainly seen how uh, Zoom conferences, et cetera, have been effective. They've been very effective in our department at Duke. Uh, we probably had the highest grand rounds attendance ever uh, with the last one we did virtually. Um, but you know, for Asperis, we have a totally revamped and revised web portal to provide a lot of the COVID 
resource, uh, resources and recovery information. Certainly our virtual meeting, our webinars have been very uh, popular uh, on topics such as telemedicine and the Medicare's uh, APP program. You know, as of now, we're uh, planning to proceed with our annual meeting in San Francisco in early April, 2021. Uh, as some of you may know, we have a summer symposium in Austin scheduled in late August of 2020 that we're still, uh, as of now, proceeding to go, go forward with. And, you know, we have our iConnect listservs, which have always been a popular media for members to share their experiences. And I'm sure they'll be talking about what they're experiencing as they deal with their, the opening of their individual practices. So we really want to maintain that high quality, clinically relevant, up-to-date information, not only on clinical issues, but practice management issues, as, as uh, uh, George alluded to. I, I mean, I think this is one of Asperger's secret sauce to keep our members uh, educated and get our uh, patients the best care that they can, and, and industry is going to play a large role. And then, and then I would say, uh, for, from my perspective, the collaboration and connection uh, aspect is, is going to be very important too. You know, uh, we recently saw the rebranding of ASCRS, uh, but I really want to expand and, and strengthen the collaboration that we've already established with other anti-segment societies around the world. This is a pandemic issue that's affected us internationally. We'll learn a lot from that and also continue that collaboration with other specialty societies in the United States. Never before, as I alluded to, have we worked as closely with AAO and, and I also uh, uh, appreciate all our other partners in ophthalmology, you know, OSN, Slack, BMC, CRST, uh, Arvo, we're all coming together. And I think these efforts are, are going to make our organization stronger and it's all together going to strengthen the field of ophthalmology and give us a stronger voice. Um, so I think those are the three ways that I see Asperger's uh, playing a role as we, as we recover from. I agree. I think collaboration is going to be the number one thing. And, and uh, you know, I have to point out that we can't collaborate like we're doing now without generous support from our industry sponsors. So I want to uh, just to, for a second, thank again, uh, Allergan, Johnson & Johnson Vision, Airy, Novartis, Santin, Kayla Pharmaceuticals, Diametrix, Avellino Labs, and Dompey. Thank you guys so much for allowing off the grid to, to go on. And Bill, I'll throw you that kind of same question, but perhaps phrased a different way. You know, what do you perceive to be maybe the biggest threats uh, to optometry and, and sort of how do, you, how do you see optometry changing after COVID and, and what's sort of the AOA's role in that? I was, we were mentioning in our pre-call, you know, the world changed after 9-11 and it never felt the same you know, going into an airport. And as George mentioned, you know, our offices don't feel the same anymore. I imagine it's the same in optometry. Just kind of talk about that uh, if you can. Yeah, and, and I'll follow up on, on Dr. Williams' comments. And, you know, uh, it, it's true for all providers, the problems that he's describing. And, uh, you know, we all got into this because we wanted to make our lives, our patients' lives better and, and makes people see better. And, and uh, in my office, for example, like most optometrists across the country, uh, you know, we stayed open during the crisis to provide urgent emergent care to help keep people out of the uh, emergency rooms. And, and we did that at a great loss, to be honest. You know, we, we lost, all lost money when we were doing that. Uh, and, uh, you know, as we move forward, uh, we're all going to have to change the way we see patients. Uh, in my practice, certainly the, the use of telehealth, uh, you know, ways to communicate better with our patients outside of the office. I think you're gonna see an increased use of that. I think you're gonna see uh, increased, maybe with telemedicine, working with, with uh, uh, ophthalmology and especially in, in specialty practices. I think we'll see that increase. I think there's a lot of potential for that. 
uh, I, I think we'll look at expanding ours. And, um, it, you know, we're going to have to find ways to generate income, you know, during social distancing and, and during times when we can see less patients. And, uh, you know, certainly when you look at the reimbursements that, that you receive as physicians, it's, it's the same reimbursements that, that we receive. And uh, because with, in Medicare, we are physicians, so it's the pay, same pay scale. If you look at the vision plans and, and the, the poor reimbursements we get on vision plans and things like that, and our cost of running a, a practice are, are high also, you know, uh, equipment, staff, all that. And, um, you know, we're, we're feeling the same problems that, that you all are. And uh, uh, I, I do think that as we move forward, um, you know, um, more collaboration will benefit all of us. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. And I, I do think that this, as we mentioned before, you know, we've had these tools like Zoom and other things for a while. Um, some of the restrictions on, you know, HIPAA laws, et cetera, have maybe prevented some of the telemedicine applications. But Bill, you bring up a great point about collaborating, especially with specialists, where you might have a patient who has, you know, diabetic retinopathy and maybe it's progressing, but we're kind of on the borderline of whether, you know, we need to initiate treatment. And rather than sending that patient, you know, into Lexington or somewhere to see, you know, a retina specialist, you could, you know, dial up the retina specialist of your choice, you know, look at, you know, look at the fundus photos together, review the, you know, the pertinent history and make a decision and treatment plan right there. Um, in, you know, increasing efficiency, making it more convenient for the patient, you know, enhancing that, that uh, really a better, better treatment plan because you're in real time collaborating. Um, you know, the problem is going to be if the retina specialist isn't able to get, a, you know, a consultative fee for that, it's really going to put a big damper on that, which is, you know, kind of in the same way bilateral cataract surgery isn't done because there's, there's a payment penalty. I mean, as we all sort of are, we have leadership from the societies together, don't you think this is an area that we could carve out together to say, hey, this would be better for optometry, be better for ophthalmology. How do we work on some, some advocacy where we are all at the table to say, we, this is what we want, you know, to take care of patients and, and move this forward. What do you think about that? Well, Gary, uh, I, oh, sorry. Yeah, let's let Bill answer and then George, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts. Sorry about that. Uh, I, I certainly agree, and, and certainly when you look at, at, at telemedicine, there's going to be some things that are going to be appropriate and some that aren't, uh, and uh, we're going to have to utilize what makes sense and figure out how we can reimburse and, and uh, uh, be reimbursed fairly for everybody's time involved. Uh, and, and you're right, I, I think there's several issues where we have a whole lot more in common than we do differences uh, that uh, we can certainly work with each other and we do in some instances to uh to, to help both professions and ultimately help our patients right george go ahead well i was just going to echo what what bill said i think telemedicine will be one of the defining legacies of the COVID era and it will be incumbent on on our professions to fig figure out how to use that technology most effectively Already, I know of three companies that are developing home-based OCT. So as a retina guy, the way I practice right now is, you know, I see someone, they have active retinal disease, I give them a shot, and then I pull a number out of the air and say, I'll see you back in four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks or 10 weeks. 
I thought that's how you guys did that, by the way. I thought it was random. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> Pretty close to random. But we do that based on our experience. Right. But we, we're not doing it based on hard data. Now, and we bring them back and I, I get the image and I look at the OCT and I say, your disease is active or it's not active and let's do another shot. Maybe we can extend you a little bit longer. What if that patient was getting a daily OCT at home and that information was being uploaded into an artificial intelligence algorithm that is already determined by looking at tens or hundreds of thousands of similar patients, what the signs are for that disease to reactivate. And then I only see that patient when I get a little ping from the AI system that uh, Mrs. Jones's vision is, Mrs. Jones's OCT is starting to change. And, we, and the machine knows that that's a good predictor for visual change. And that's when I bring her in. And I really think that is going to be the future in the retina space, but not only the retina space. I think, that, I think you can make the same argument for glaucoma. We check your pressure, what? You come in, okay, your pressure's good today. Come back in 90 days, we'll recheck it. Maybe we'll do a visual field. What if we were checking your pressure every day? That technology is pretty close to being there. And what if, what if we could check your visual fields at home? And again, that gets uploaded into an algorithm that can, that's a much better predictor than we are. And is frankly more accurate than we are as humans for saying, is that, a, is that really a clinically significant change in the nerve fiber layer or in the cup to disc ratio? or the ganglion cell thickness, or whatever parameter we use to monitor glaucoma. And what that will do is it'll mean that we'll be seeing patients that really need our services, and will become less of this uh, routine screening of chronic disease. We have to get more efficient in our delivery of care to patients with chronic disease. And I, I really think that the combination of, of telemedicine and artificial intelligence is going to lead that charge. The Academy is very much, as we speak, uh, talking to our advocates in Congress and at CMS that, that they cannot roll back the changes they've done in telemedicine. Because again, we're never going to be able to see the volumes the way we used to see them. And we have to make sure that there, there's not abuse of, of this technology. But I really think that it's, it's the best thing for patients. And as long as our advocacy remains patient-focused, I think we'll win. Hey, the telemedicine issue uh, is an interesting one. You know, for, if I look at from the asterisk's perspective, anterior segment uh, specialist, you know, obviously this is where telemedicine uh, has had limitations. Um, you know, we're utilizing it probably less than 10% of the patient care here at Duke. It's useful for addressing uh, general patient questions, issues regarding medications, certainly, uh, you know, some red eye issues and maybe for some of our oculoplastics colleagues. But for us anterior segment folks, it's, it's more difficult. Although I will, I will tell you the, um, you know, even just your iPhone can be somewhat effective that the phones are getting better. And, and, you know, I was able to diagnose a contact lens related uh, infiltrate from one of my cardiothoracic surgery, uh, surgery colleagues, uh, surgeon colleagues at Duke, whose daughter 
had eye pain and sent me an amazingly clear photo and I can see there was an infiltrate. So these are the kind of things that are involved in, but I th also think we need to be creative. One of my uh, colleagues, Lloyd Williams, uh, is working uh, on you know, 3D printing technology to come up with a device that you can actually use to you know, do a, a slit beam view of the uh, anterior chamber and cornea uh, that hopefully patients uh, can use for or modify for home use. So these are the kind of things that we have to start getting creative about. You know, we had Rania Habash from Baskin Palmer, who's, who's really one of the experts there, give a webinar uh, on telemedicine. There's definitely an interest because we had huge attendance on that. And I think that's going to continue to evolve. Yeah, I can tell you personally, you know, my mind was forever, you know, changed uh, last week. I, 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 on Tuesday, I did telemedicine with a 17-year-old girl who had, uh, you know, some, some mild vision loss, as she said. And I did a telemedicine uh, uh, consult with her. I just noticed something was off. Her mother was behind her doing most of the talking. And, and as I was looking at her, you know, her right eye seemed a little bit like it was a proptotic a tad bit. And, and I had her kind of come close and she actually had a little bit of nystagmus. And I had her co cover her other eye and she couldn't see anything. So even though they were scared to death to come in, her mother especially, I said, no, no, we, we, we got to see you. And that poor thing had, had an enormous brain tumor, and she had surgery 24 hours later. So we could have potentially saved her life just with telemedicine. So anytime someone tells me that you know, telemedicine is hocus pocus, or there's, you know, I'm like, no, man. And, and that, that kind of will forever kind of change my opinion on that. So I do think that we, we do need to change. You're right, Terry. If you think about the way that, you know, Roger Zaldivar does it, he's got a full slip lamp you know, uh, examination, and he's looking at real-time scanning OCTs of the macula, topo, tomo, all that. So, you know, you could see it where you'd have a place in, in your consults. I certainly see it as a place in our post-ops. I and mean, if you think about your one-day LASIK post-ops, I mean, all you want to know is, is the eye quiet and are they ecstatic? And they, they really should be. So I think that, that in, in the post-op care, especially since those are part of the global period, I kind of think that, that that's going to be something that we'll see. Um, pushing past uh, telemedicine, Tal Raviv has a good question here, Terry. I want to ask you this first, and then, George, maybe you can pop in, too. Um, you know, we've talked about advocacy. You both mentioned advocacy, but specifically, you know, two areas where I think we need advocacy as ophthalmologists is, you know, this thought about, you know, uh, a push to get equal second eye payment for bilateral cataract surgery. You know, uh, you know what, what are we doing with that initiative specifically? And then secondly, what we mentioned earlier, um, with that 15% cut with FACO, or what's ASCRIS doing, NAO doing specifically, to, to, if anything, to, to address those two issues? Yeah, I'm happy to, to start off. You know, there's definitely a bipartisan push in, in government to move physicians away from fee-for-service uh, and into alternative payment models that are based on quality, outcomes, and cost. Um, so we're really, uh, as uh, we discussed earlier, collaborating with the AO on APMs that address initiatives like immediately sequential bilateral cataract surgery. It makes a lot of sense, especially at this time. Um, you know, certainly the data is out there in terms of its uh, safety and efficacy. We know from these studies that patients are very happy uh, with the results, but, you know, we haven't moved on it because of the government side of things, you know, the, the, um, the experience in California uh, has been very positive. Uh, so I, I think it certainly makes sense. And uh, now is the time to really advocate that. And that's what our 
you know, Nancy McCann and our, our government relations committee folks are, are really pushing. And uh, I really hope that we can see something come out of that initiative. I think Terry's spot on. Uh, as he knows, the Academy and Ascaris governmental leadership had a meeting just last week about this. And the question and the responsibility for both societies is, is how do we come up with a model that we can sell? Because at the end of the day, we have to show people who are paying the bills that this A is the best thing for patients and B, it can actually save some money. Right now, the penalties for bilateral surgery make it prohibitive. I think it's un unrealistic to think that we will get two times uh, what we get on the same day, but it is, I think we can do a lot better than 150%. And so we just have to figure out a number that makes sense for physicians. And then we have to sell it as, as the right thing for patients. And the right thing for patients is just what Terry outlined. It's more convenient for them in, a, in an era where we want to try and minimize older patients' contact with the healthcare system. I think we have a variety of, of compelling arguments. The second point you raised is the the very disappointing and, in my mind, completely unjustified cut in cataract surgery that we went through last year. So why did that happen? Well, it, again, it happened because of the way the system is currently constructed. Um, I, I can make a very compelling argument that modern cataract surgery is the most cost-effective operation in all of Medicare. There are, there are no other surgeries in medicine that have the high success rate, that have the impact on quality of life, and last a lifetime. If you look at 97, 98, now maybe 99% of cataract surgeries restore vision, assuming there's not an underlying retinal problem, and that's my fault if there is, that, uh, you know, we're giving people back vision, better vision than they had when they were kids. That is truly remarkable. And yet, what is our reward for that then? Steadily decreasing reimbursement. And that's for the simple fact that the profession has become so good at this operation that time has gone down. And unfortunately, we live in a time-based world. What we need is the transition to a value-based world. And in a value-based world, all of ophthalmology wins, not just cataract surgery. And I would argue all of optometry wins as well, because we know that there's nothing that patients value more than their vision. And so whatever technology we can provide them to keep them seeing better, to allow them to function longer. It, it, it's a win for society. It's a win for the patient. And we just have to figure out how to demonstrate that value. So one of the things we're trying to do short term is we're trying to get uh, what should be done according to law. And that's to have the post-operative visits increased by the same amount as the E&M services are. CMS's decision goes against all precedent 
frankly, it goes against their own regulations. But we're having some difficulty with, at CMS. They don't see it quite the way we do. But I think this is an opportunity where if we could just get that, if we could just get post-operative visits back to where this standard need M visits would be, that, that'll erase much of the, of the cut. But then going forward, we have to be able to demonstrate that just because we're able to do something quicker doesn't mean the payment should go down because we're, we're actually doing it better. And it's interesting, Gary, because, you know, CMS, you know, it seems like they're trying to throw us a bone with everything else going on right now with advanced payments and, you know, phone calls are the same E&M level as an in-person visit. So it seems like now would be the time to talk about that cataract cut. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they found $2 trillion, you know, very quickly when they needed it, uh, but they couldn't find it when we needed, you know, no cut on, on uh, the cataract codes. Um, so, you know, I know this is unprecedented times, but it's interesting when you need the money, you find it or you print it or whatever it is. Um, you know, George, one thing I'll say is I, you know, I will say this, when we do bilateral cataract surgery, we're taking a hundred percent of the risk on both eyes. Um, and you can even make some argument we're taking more than a hundred percent risk because we're doing both of them at the same time. So I think anything short of getting full reimbursement for both eyes um, that's going to be hard to swallow for a lot of folks. I mean, I do understand the idea of, of giving, you know, some sort of a, a deal or a discount, but I feel like we're already giving uh, quite a discount. Um, but, but while you're asking, can you ask for bilateral YAGs too? Because that sure would be nice um, while we're sitting there, uh, you know, doing a YAG capsulotomy. It sure would be nice to be able to get both of those done in this uh, post-COVID world too. Um, I'll put it on the pitch list. Well, yes, thank you. Um, Bill, what do you think about bilateral cataract surgery? I mean, obviously in a world where co-management um, is, is um, you know, something that is, that, that, that we do. And uh, I, you know, I think patients choose that. And it's a wonderful thing. Um, think about the uh, increased efficiencies that we would all experience. I mean, do you think that'd be embraced by your patients and optometry um, along with some of the things George is saying, increasing uh, the, the post-operative visits? in terms of their, uh, their reimbursement? Oh, absolutely, you know, I, I started uh, in practice in 1985, which was actually when, when co-management first came to our area. So I've been doing it my, my whole career. And, and when we look at our practice, we've, we've done around 20,000 post-ops. And if, if you look at the reimbursement that we get now, uh, uh, you know, to, to have my, my, my front desk and a, a technician and, and, and pay a doctor to look at and things, you know, you know, we could lose a fortune on them, and uh, you know, it, it certainly is 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 something that optometry would support uh, if we could do them both. You, you look at the uh, uh, success rate, as George talked about, ninety nine percent. You know, bilateral certainly makes sense. Yeah, I mean, from my standpoint, I would love to be able to offer that to the patient, even if. You know, worst case scenario, we could balance bill the patient for the difference if they wanted the convenience of being able to have both both procedures done. I mean, what do you think about that option, Terry? Do you think that is something that uh, is something that we could throw out there? You mean in terms of the balance billing? Well, I mean, let's say it's a fifty percent discount on the second surgery, but if the patient wants to have you know that done, 
uh, you know, they could pay out of pocket, for example. I mean, I don't, I may be way out of line here, but you know, if CMS doesn't want to pay for it and we're not going to do it otherwise, I mean, is that a, is that a middle ground? Yeah, and possibly, you know, um, and I, I think, you know, th this is also a, an opportunity as, as we all deal with the slow ramp up, we, we have time uh, to talk to our patients about their options uh, in terms of what they want. And, you know, before, if you, you know, heading back into clinic for these limited times, because we've had shifts, it's really kind of given me, and I'm sure many others, different perspective on what eye care is like with our, our patients. You know, it's in some ways nice that we have that extra time uh, with our patients and we have an opportunity to interact with them through telemedicine uh, as well to have that kind of discussion, quality discussion. So I it may open the door um, for premium technology to play more of a role in what we're doing because we're fortunate to be in a field that we can do uh, and offer these advanced technologies that really also improve the patient's quality of life. So as we see more of these technologies uh, evolve, I think it's gonna lower that barrier and I think practices are gonna be uh, looking at those type of technologies to, to also help recover. Because ultimately what we're doing is something that's better for the patient. And I think that may be a, 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 you know, another kind of approach to help uh, cushion this blow we're seeing from the from the COVID crisis, you know, as we, I want to thank you all for uh, have you know coming on today and sharing your perspectives. I think more conversations like this are really going to be what helps us bring you know all of our professions forward. It's going to allow us to take better care of our patients. Hopefully, give us you know even a more uh, an improved satisfaction of our jobs and avoid burnout, as something George had mentioned. Um, as we sort of wrap up here, I'd love to just kind of hear if anyone has any any final thoughts um, on the COVID crisis um, and and sort of uh, any words of wisdom that you, you'd like to leave us with. Um, George, why don't we start with you and we'll go down the line. My take home message is that we're not going back to the way it was. The practice of medicine is, is never going to return to where we were. And so we're all gonna to have to learn a different model. I think this creates great opportunity. The analogy to 9-11, uh, I, I think is valid. Uh, that was a defining moment in the change in transportation. And this will be a defining moment in healthcare delivery. And it's gonna be incumbent upon all of us. And I would agree with the comments made at, at the beginning that individuals are only as strong as their collective societies and their the ability of their societies to advocate for their professions on behalf of patients once it becomes all about us we might as well be the plumbers union as long as it's patient focused we will succeed and I, I think that there will be some good that, that comes out of this horrendous situation. Harry, what are your, th what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, and I'd like to kind of leave on an optimistic note. Um, I think um, the future is bright still for ophthalmology and for everyone out there. Um, 
you know, we're fortunate to have a gift of giving people their sight back, which is still very highly valued uh, and regarded. And I do think, sure, it's going to be a slow and gradual return for, for many practices. It's going to be different for everybody. Um, and although telemedicine is going to play a role, I, I do think there are a lot of patients out there that miss their interaction with their physician. And, and even though we're doing great things with Zoom conferencing, they're all going to play a role in how we evolve uh, in terms of how we teach. Things like, for instance, our annual meeting coming up in, in San Francisco. I think people miss being with each other. They miss that personal contact. Uh, I love this interface here, but you miss a lot of things. And actually I've been reading some interesting articles on Zoom fatigue, you know, because you don't have a lot of the visual cues uh, that you usually do when you interact with, with someone in person. Um, and the networking opportunities are different in person uh, than they are, you know, uh, via digital interface. So I do think there's gonna be some return. Uh, it's gonna, like I said, gradual, but we'll get to that point, especially once we have um, a good vaccine or potentially a good treatment, you know, with the expedited F FDA approval of some uh, antiviral agents, that may change the landscape and allow us to return smoother uh, and then treat this like, you know, what we had before, which was influenza, you know. Um, and so that makes me, you know, comfort, uh, more comfortable with our path forward. Um, and I think we'll all continue to work together uh, and reach that goal, which I, which I think will happen. Bill, take us home. What, right. what, what final words do you have for us? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll certainly agree with uh, Terry and George both. And that, uh, you know, I, I do think a lot of the patients that we all deal with are older, just, just because you have more vision problems as you get older. And uh, uh, so I, I do think a lot of those patients are going to want to continue the face-to-face. -face. I, I think that you know, what we have traditionally done will come back to some degree. But uh, I do agree with George that I think that the world has changed. I think we're going to have to look at things differently. I think practices that uh, both optometry and ophthalmology that don't embrace changes will, will suffer through this. And, and the ones that are, are willing to, to look and see how that landscape has changed and be willing to adapt I think they'll do very well. Blake? Yeah, I think uh, to quote the great Steve Dell, uh, you know, uh, no matter, you know, the, the, the worst day in ophthalmology is still better than the, uh, than the best day in many other specialties. And COVID's never going to change that. So I also agree with Terry that there's never going to be, you know, a change for the interaction you know, from a patient to the doctor and from a colleague to a colleague like we're going to have in person. So we're never going to replace that. But I think that a lot of things that we learned today have figured out how we can use hybrid models to kind of get the best of both. So um, that's really all I have. You know, we always look to our core values and to our leaders in times of crisis. And that's why we appreciate all three of you for coming on. Thank you so much. And thank you uh, to everybody who watched this live. Thanks, guys. Until next time. Yeah. Stay safe, everyone. See ya.